it's great to have a success story. Now the you know these these benefits are coming home to roost. Uh, we're actually getting price deflation. It's starting to work. Uh, the technology has gotten better. Um, it's just it's just a better system, and and it's it's great to have a success story. Uh, it, it sounds like you know we, we don't we don't almost don't really need the term. Welcome to the Early Advantage, where a slightly unshaven James Early talks about things that need to be talked about. I want to go back, though, to last week. Last week, I talked about ESG. And whenever I write about ESG or talk about ESG in a video, I get a lot of responses. It's a hot-button issue, and I think it's good. I'm glad that people care. And I opined about a lot of the greenwashing and I think a lot of the hypocrisy on the consumer side. Uh, you know, people who, who didn't like weapons or defense companies before now suddenly think they're ESG after uh, Russia invaded Ukraine and, and now they maybe needed to protect the free world, right? Um, I mean, I'm not, a, I'm not against that conclusion, but I'm against some of the hypocrisy. But watching myself, I think my pendulum swung a little bit too far in the negative end. I, I am not, I have never been like against trying to make the world better with how people invest. I'm not one of the people who sat back and said, ah, now look at ESG, you know, coming under fire now. No, I'm not, not like that. Uh, in fact, at Motley Fool, I was one of the initial people trying to to consider bringing ESG to, to the business. You know, how, how do we how do we change our investments? Um, I, I do think it needs to mature. And I do think I do think uh, this identity crisis that it's going through is going to be fundamentally healthy. Uh, and, and maybe it as an ESG concept won't be it so much anymore. Maybe it's going to evolve or devolve or be something else. Uh, but I brought on someone today, uh, someone who knows more and, and someone who I automatically like. Because he is a fellow James, and, and I tend to automatically like anyone named James. James Allen is our editor of Exponential Energy Fortunes and Exponential Energy Fortunes Private Reserve here at South Bank Investment Research. And he is someone who has thought a lot more about these things than I have. And we wanted to unpack this topic a little bit more. So first of all, James, thanks for coming on and helping me, someone like me, to sort this out. Yeah, my pleasure, my fellow James. I'm also a fellow unshaven James as well today, I have to say. Perfect. Perfect. So I, I say me or someone like me, because I think I think there are a lot of people watching this, James, who are I mean, there, there are the people who feel the smug uh, sense of victory that ha, ESG is now struggling. There are people who are like with their the bottom from the bottom of their heart, want to do better in the world through their capital allocation and are just confused. I think in a weird way, we're all in this together figuring out ESG. And I mentioned to you before I push record, Deloitte was saying in a couple of years, ESG, uh, more than more than half of uh, actively managed funds may have some ESG mandate, which, you know, at some point if everything is ESG, then, then what is ESG anymore? Um, how do you read this? I, I mean, specifically, for example, uh, a lot of people may say oil and gas, oil and gas is terrible. Oil and gas companies are going to hell. They're bad, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, guess what? You you probably you know drove with oil and gas to go get do go shopping, or you know if an ambulance came and took you to the hospital, it was burning fuel, right? I mean, we can't really escape this, can we? No, that's right. I mean, ESG means um, different things to different people. I, I personally sort of have started to hate the term. Really, I think uh, it's it's become so overused. It's almost sort of meaningless now. Uh, there's been a huge drive against oil and gas firms. A lot, a lot of it, I I do understand. But in, just in terms of the energy transition, we, we, you know, we've got to recognise the importance of some of these oil and gas firms to drive uh, energy transition, to drive the, the movement to net zero. We do need their balance sheets 
Uh, we do need their massive capital outlay into renewables. A lot of them are making that transition from predominantly oil and gas firms into renewable firms. It's not going to be a transition that ha happens overnight, but they are driving huge growth in the renewables market. So, um, you know, they might be screened out of any ESG portfo portfolio. Actually, there's lots of opportunity at some of these um, so-called dirty firms, really, to uh, to really put for the next stage of the renewables rollout. Really, I think there's a huge opportunity in some of these um, oil and gas firms. The to, biggest uh, solar the firm, the biggest solar uh, facility near me is owned by British Petroleum. That's exactly right. Yeah, and that's um, that's replicated um, elsewhere in the states as well. I mean, we're seeing you know Shell in in the UK, BP as well. They're making huge commitments to. Um, into renewables, it's going to be, a, you know, they, they get lots of flack for not moving fast enough. I do understand that. But actually, we can't do this energy transition, this movement to net zero, just by these, you know, relatively small um, startups, solar farms, wind companies. We can't do it just with them. We do need the balance sheets of these so-called um, oil and gas firms. So I, I do think there's opportunity there, some of these uh, big, big firms really to um, to be the leaders of the next stage of the rollout. I think I think there's um, for investors certainly sh should be looking at some of these you know dirty firms really to be the next pioneers of them um, of, of the green growth. And, and, and when, when they sort of you know I'm, I don't even say right the ship because you know we're, we're using the ship as it is right. It's hard to say it's wrong, but we, as they get cleaner, uh, I mean we we almost can't avoid having them be the vanguards in this sense. I mean it's great it's great to explore hydrogen with these little small firms, and, and I'm not against that, but. Um, you know, that's not nearly enough. And, and, and even with EV, I mean, even if, you know, EV is 5% of the market, that's great, right? But that's still, you know, one in every 20 cars. Um, it's, it's not that much. So it's, it's almost impossible. It is impossible. Impossible to imagine us moving towards a cleaner future without this, the big companies participating. That's right. And they are starting to participate. I mean, as I said, some of these, um, you know, Shell, um, Shell have got big plans in the, across Europe for an EV rollout that, you know, they're, they're actually starting, they, they have plans to become over the next 20 years, a bit, a bit more of a, a utility, actually, than, a, than a, an oil and gas firm. And that's, you know, that's the movement we, we're liking to see. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm certainly not against um, investors um, looking at some of these dirty firms for, for, uh, for growth, really, in a, in a net zero um, environment. I think uh, there's lots of good opportunity out there. Yeah, we, we talked with Roger Mortar. I, I had him on the show last week, actually, uh, from Crane Shares. He, he basically bases his, I don't know if we want to call it ESG or not, but his fund on, on transitions, you know, uh, not necessarily right. finding the very best absolute value, the, the cleanest, greenest company, but, but who's changing the most? Uh, and, and, you know, he says that's actually giving him the best returns, not just, I mean, it's, it's doing good for the planet, but it's also academically giving the best returns, too. That's right. And, you know, the, the more these companies um, invest in renewables, the more costs actually will come down. You know, they have an economy of scale, uh, a real learning curve in renewables, which, you know, that we're not going to hit that, you know, the, the, the cost decreases just by smaller hydrogen firms or, or uh, solar farms alone. We, we need scale here. Yeah. And oil and gas firms can actually provide some of this scale to really decrease costs and even further. So that's the, that's the great story now, I think, for the next, um, I think, five, 10 years. We need to get these costs even lower than they are now. I mean, look, the, the costs have plummeted over the last uh, decade or so. We have, we have a, a bit of short-term inflationary pressure right now in the, in the market, but really the long-term structural movement is down. And, you know, we, we get scaled with some of these big, you know, oil and gas firms, these uh, dirty firms, into, moving into this market, I think those costs can come down even more. 
Uh, let's talk about scale and, and costs coming down. The UK recently had a, an auction, energy auction, uh, twice a year they have it. And if I'm reading correctly, the, the actual the costs uh, of, of renewables came down from last time, actually deflation. And you and I know that there are not many things that deflate in this world. Uh, the price of electronics is, is one uh, example, but most things inflate, especially right now. So it's, it's pretty amazing that that's deflating. Uh, can you walk through a little bit more in a little more detail because you know more than I do about what happened? Yeah, right. So the UK government, really to try and um, get our um, uh, renewable industry up and running. Oh, we have a very successful renewable industry already, but just to scale it out a bit further, we hold twice uh, or biennial, biennial uh, um, government auctions, CFD auctions, where the government uh, guarantees a minimum price of the electricity. So it's a reverse auction. Um, lowest bidders effectively win. And what we found this time, a, a record 11 gigawatts of new renewable capacity um, achieved an um, average strike price of £48 per megawatt. Now, that's just one quarter. This is for, for, uh, across all the, um, the winning bids for uh, renewables. You might have onshore wind, offshore wind, um, solar, uh, floating wind. Uh, anyway, it was for just £48 per megawatt. Now, that is just one quarter of the current price of current cost, I should say, of um, of uh, burning burning gas to, to make electricity. So uh, it's. But, but uh, let me jump in on that. I mean, the, 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 to be fair, right? That that price is a longer term price. I'm guessing that that it was auctioned off that, and obviously the, the right. current price is arguably artificially high because of, of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I mean, obviously we, we can't continue. At the, well, maybe we will have to continue with this price, but um, you know, it's certainly it's higher than it has been recently, right? Yeah, that's right. So it's a 15-year contract. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, this, this £48, effectively, that's, that was an average price. You know, if, um, if uh, the, the market price is going to be higher, so as in right now, so if these projects are up and running now, the market price is higher. Actually, the, the renewable generators will be giving back that difference back into the market, effectively back, back to the government, huh. and that's going to lower uh, retail um, energy prices for everyone here. So it's subsidy-free. Obviously, the reverse happens. If the, the market price of electricity comes down to below that strike price, then actually the government then top up, Makes up the difference. difference yeah. So they, they, yeah, they, that, then it becomes a subsidy. But if we, if we assume, you know, certainly the electricity markets in the UK is gas-driven, effectively, you know, a lot, still quite a lot of them, uh, gas uh, in the market sets the marginal price. You know, if we assume uh, that gas prices are going to stay high, high for the, for the, certainly for the short to medium term, and that all indications uh, suggest that that will be the case. Well, this is just a, a huge boon for for the, the government, for for um, retail, you know, you know, energy um, consumers. Um, this is just you know, it's, it's lowering the price um, of the retail bills that they'll pay, uh, and it also obviously the main overarching thing. It also helps to solve. Um, so the climate crisis, which we're in as well. So uh, it's a, it considered a real success, actually, all at a time when inflation uh, across the board is, is rising, commodity costs are, are, are going up, and yet we're seeing this deflationary pressure on uh, in, in the renewables market. So it was an amazing, uh, amazing thing to see, actually. But a lot of people expected this. The prices, we, we've got a big um, um, decrease in prices. <clears throat> people thought that, you know, this auction... Prices might go up a little bit, but not not at all. We've uh, we saw a massive decrease in the uh, in renewables. Yeah, that's, that's renewables fantastic. Price. You know, all these years, I mean, decades, right? The, the world has spent uh, subsidizing and kind of rolling uh, renewables along, and and now, I mean, it, it's great to have a success story. Now, the you know these these benefits are coming home to roost. Uh, we're actually getting price deflation. It's starting to work. Uh, the technology has gotten better. Um, it's just it's just a better system, and and it's it's great to have a success story. Uh, it, it sounds like you know we we don't. 
we don't almost don't really need the term ESG or we won't in, in five years. Um, you know, things are just too mixed and meddled uh, and, and, you know, things that are taking off, things that are providing benefit are doing that uh, regardless of, of how they're labeled. Would you, would you agree, agree with that, James? I do agree with that, really. I think um, ESG has become totally meaningless, really. Um, you know, uh, you can you can make an argument for any company or any you know any industry to be ESG at the moment, really. I think there's no real value in that. As I said, uh, we do need everyone pulling in the right direction. We do need these oil and gas firms, which which would probably uh, you know we do need them. They they might be screened out of lots of portfolios, but actually we do need them. There's lots and there's lots of value in in in, in going for some of these bigger firms that are making the transition over the next twenty to thirty years. So I I, I don't look at ESG investing really. I don't look at, I don't like the label. I think it's become sort of meaningless. I think you have to like, you know, go, go into every company, see what their, their plans are, um, see if they can really, um, you know, um, what their plans to scale out renewables are, uh, and, and go from there. I think um, generally uh, you can miss a really good opportunity in the market if, if you're just using a sort of defined ESG label. Yeah, it's more work than just following a rating, but it's probably the only accurate, realistic way to do it. And although to be fair. I have never invested in a tobacco company, James, and I don't think I ever will. That's my that's my contribution to the to the, the ESG world. But that's yeah. pretty cutting. I don't care how much money they give to charity, uh, but you know. Well, that's, and that's totally fair enough. And there's there's some um, you know uh, oil and gas firms that aren't making the the transition. And just from a, a moral perspective, I probably wouldn't uh, invest in those. I think because I don't think, I don't think they are. Uh, making that transition to renewables. I think they're still stuck in the old ways. I think their share price will, will suffer accordingly over the, the medium to long term. Um, but I mean, you know, certainly the companies that are looking, they might be predominantly oil and gas now, but actually you look at their plans for sort of five to 10 years, they might be make, making that switch over. They're the companies I think there's lots of uh, opportunity to invest yeah, in. They've seen the handwriting on the wall. I mean, they may have resisted years and years ago, but I think for a long time, most of those companies have seen the handwriting on the wall and, and they're moving quickly. So yeah, if someone's anti, really anti-ESG, you know, we're not, trying to stop you um, and, and you've got stuff you can feast on. But, you know, I, I think increasingly that's going to be missing the point of, of, of where the real economic movement is going. So, James Allen, uh, thank you very much for coming on. Thank you for helping to, to clear this up. Um, again, it's not it's not immediately obvious. It's, it's kind of a thing we have to kind of muddle through as, as a society to figure this out. But I, I strongly believe that muddling will be worth it. So so thanks again. And thanks to you for watching this segment at home. China is the single biggest geopolitical story of our generation. Is China going to grow bigger and take over the world in this big autocratic regime where Winnie the Pooh cartoons are all banned? Or is it going to self-implode like the Death Star? China is hard for non-Chinese to understand. Frankly, it's even hard for Chinese to understand. My guest today is going to help us change that. Bob Guterman is COO of SubChina, a media company that makes articles and videos in English but about China. Bob, welcome. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Awesome. Awesome. We're excited to have you. Um, let me start with, with a headline. China, or two headlines. China will overtake the USA to become the world's largest economy. Uh, there's another chart that, that shows Chinese GDP growing past the US GDP pretty soon. And both of these were from 2010, uh, Euro Money International and the Financial Times predicting that somewhere 2017 to 2019, China was going to overtake the U.S. It didn't happen. Now, are they just uh, a little bit early and, and it's inevitable? Or do you think China will run aground? I don't think it's so simple as saying that 
uh, it either will or won't happen or that China will run aground. I think it was easy to make predictions like that between 2000 and let's say 2020 or uh, the beginning of the pandemic more or less because the entire world order had felt pretty fixed for a long time and it had felt pretty good and economies were growing and inflation was at bay in most of the economies that mattered and supply chains were moving to just-in-time delivery you know they were so proud of how lean their inventories were because everything just flowed and none of those things are true today every single one of those foundational aspects of the global economy that we've taken for granted for decades now is not true and it almost seems foolish to have so much confidence in them like that so for those economists who at one point said China will become larger than the U.S., it looked pretty true at that time. And certainly there's a lot of, you know, almost any math that's just slightly positive on China results in that outcome because of how many people they have. If their per capita GDP just edges higher, you know, boom, they're bigger than us. They have five times the number of people uh, in their country as the U.S., so they're GDP per capita could be just a hair above a fifth as much as ours and they have a larger economy. Um, additionally, if you look at purchasing power parity, so that's how far their currency goes in their country, uh, essentially, in layman's terms. Their economy could be said to be even larger than ours already. Whether they'll Run and let me just jump again here. If you're new to economics, purchasing power parity is sort of like, but the Economist magazine has the Big Mac index. Like, how much does it, because every currency is kind of different, but like, how much does it roughly cost you to buy a Big Mac in your country? And that's, that's an example of that. Exactly. So what I'm getting at is that for a long time, it seemed inevitable that China would overtake the U.S. Now, not only does it not seem inevitable, but I think most people would be reticent to make any form of prediction in any direction because all bets are sort of off with the way the global economy is going right now. My personal take on it is that on a long enough timeline, it does seem still inevitable because of the reasons I mentioned. They're just sheer numbers, the sheer number of people they have there. And if they accumulate even... Uh, fraction of the output per person that we have, then they'll be there, they'll, they'll exceed us. But I don't know if that means what we think it means in terms of global impact or leverage and negotiation for quality of the economy or quality of life with people in the economy. So in absolute terms, it's hard to see a long-term horizon, like more than 20 or 30 years from now, where they don't overtake us. But I don't know if it means uh, a whole shakeup of the global world order as we all have been kind of led to fear that it might. That, that makes sense. That makes sense. And let me, let me jump to two other headlines. Um, China's growth model, unsustainable. China's unsustainable economic model. Uh, one was from the Financial Times. One was from Stratfor Consulting. Uh, they were both in 2010. And as, as you know, and, and as I know as well, a lot of China watchers know, probably for 20 years. We've been seeing these stories saying China's going to implode, China's going to implode, uh, and it hasn't imploded. And I think that's that's from people applying 
kind of the Western democratic economic framework to China. And when you, when you look at it with that lens, it looks worse. But China has sort of special powers that I think those people miss. Uh, what would you say to someone who, who is used to the economic system elsewhere and, and, and is tempted to apply that lens to China? What is so different about it? Well, there's two things you brought up. One is that China's economic growth model is unsustainable. And the second is that China's economy is going to implode. Those are very different statements. I think that the implosion of China's economy remains extremely unlikely. As you alluded to, they've got quote unquote special powers. What does that really mean? I mean, they don't have different levers in front of them than any other economy. The difference is that one decisive party gets to decide what to do with all the levers at the same time. So where our Fed and our Treasury and our legislative branch and our executive branch and all of our state level decision making structures and budgetary flows are all independent with some level of coordination, but by and large independent. In China, they're all in one room. And so what that means is when there's economic trouble, they can slam on all the brakes or press all the accelerators or pull all the levers and tweak all the knobs all at the same time in a way that simply isn't possible in most liberal uh, government systems. And that's allowed them to go a lot further through a lot more complexity without an implosion and probably means that an outright implosion is also just less likely in general. Now, the first part of what you said, though, that their economic growth model is unsustainable is almost without a doubt true. The reason why I say almost without a doubt is because China's defied logic repeatedly over and over again. As you said, people have been saying for decades what was going to happen to Chinese, China's economy, and it never does. So uh, woe be to he or she who tries to say exactly what will happen in China's economy. And we talk about American exceptionalism, but I think economically speaking, the true exceptionalism in the past 40 years has been China. But it is true that their economic growth model cannot they cannot play the same song on repeat any longer. They have built their economy largely off of capital formation, so real estate, infrastructure, um, energy, uh, just building housing for other people, urbanizing, building out the factory infrastructure and logistics that power the global manufacturing economy, all these things that they've done. You've also read the headlines about ghost cities and overcapacity and all of this stuff. It's true. I don't know how uh, threatening it is to their whole economy, the overcapacity issue is, but it's true that they are at least at, if not above capacity, which means to me, they can't just do it again. They can't double their capacity yet again. That would be insane, even by uh, a centrally planned standard. And so if most of their real economy these past decades has been fueled by construction and real estate, and all the suppliers and workers and, and laborers that feed into that system, and they can't just do that again. You're looking at millions, if not tens of millions of people whose livelihoods at the very least won't be growing or thriving as they sort of just go to a steady state model of, of infrastructure development or capital formation, but may even reduce. And w what are those people gonna do next? You know, what are they gonna do with all those people? Uh, is, is sort of the way to think of
China's economic system? What are they going to do with all those people if they're not doing the same thing they just did for 30 or 40 years? Is there that much new stuff about to start happening to replace that activity? That's how I think about it. Yeah, you can only send so many people abroad to work on these you know, Belt and Road projects as well. Uh, Bob, what would you say to the cynic? The cynic who's, who's read reports, for example, by the U.S. Office of the Trade Representative that you know, China buys a hundred and something billion dollars of goods and services legitimately from the U.S., but then ostensibly steals 500 to 600 billion more. Um, how much in, in a world that's deglobalizing, how much does China is almost big enough to be its, well, it is big enough to be its own market. How much does China need the rest of the world, especially the free world, uh, to, to survive? It's true that China is at a state of development where it does not rely on the world just to get by the way that it might have in the 80s or the 90s or the early 2000s. China has accumulated so much of everything, just sheer economic activity, foreign exchange, uh, domestic uh, standard of living is just gone up so much that people are just much happier than they ever used to be. China's in a way better place than they've ever been. They could stand more pain and more isolation from the world than at any point since they first started opening up in the 70s. One would have to reason. And yet, if you look at the percentage of their economy that is either directly or indirectly tied to the global economy, how could they possibly survive being cut off from everybody else? By the way, the same is true of the U.S. and, and Europe yeah. and every other country and region in the world. So it's not like anything that China's done wrong to be, quote unquote, dependent yeah. on the world. It's just the way that the entire world is these days. It's an academic question. Yeah. You know, like uh, 50 years ago or certainly 200 years ago, you could draw all the connections between countries with lines like a boat goes here every week or a plane goes here every week and capital flows this way. But you couldn't do that now. It would just be a blur. It'd be a, a mesh with no gaps between all the lines because the, the uh, relationship between all countries and all systems is just so tight. It's more like a fabric than um, a node and, and spoke system, you know? And so who could survive being cut off from the world? A anybody? I don't think so. Certainly, certainly not a country that has so much work left to do on its own population. So here's a, a fact I come back to fairly often. You read a lot about how China's lifted more people out of poverty and into the middle class than any other country in the history of the world. I think the uh, official numbers are like 800 or 900 million people, so three United States is almost. Um, that's true that they've done that by and large. What we forget is that means there's still like 500 million people that haven't been pulled up yet. And waiting so in line, yeah. When you think about the amount of development and work that lies ahead of the Chinese government and the Chinese nation, um, it's immense. And so let's just say that a complete closing off to the global economy would only hit China by 20% to their GDP. I mean, I don't think hmm. how it couldn't be more than that once you factor in all the network externalities of technology and capital flows. But let's just say it was just a cool 20% right off the top. I mean, that's a crisis level figure, but it's a really crisis level figure when you consider like that they didn't need to just stay where they were. They also needed to go 30, 40% above where they are right now 
to get that last tranche or two of people up into uh, you know, a copacetic equilibrium for the long run of their internal stability. Yeah, and, and you know, say what you want about the Chinese Communist Party, but that is a very sincere goal they have, is lifting people out of poverty. And that's one thing they've been really good at. You know, it's probably one of the best things that they've, they've done. Um, Bob, we're running short on time, so let's do a quick lightning round. Uh, all different topics. Uh, not going to hold you these in a formal sense. It's just kind of fun. Okay, so, so no pressure. But number of expats from democratic countries living in China in five years, up or down from now? Down. Down. China's trade with the U.S. and Europe on a percentage-adjusted basis in two years, up, down, or same? Up. Up. All right. Quality of Chinese food in Chinese restaurants outside of China in two years, getting better or getting worse or the same? <laughs> getting better. It's hard getting to better, an optimist. You know, for those who don't know, the, the, the food in many Chinese restaurants is not, in the West, is, is, is not real. It's, it's akin to real Chinese food in some ways, but it's not like really real Chinese food. So uh, those who have spent a lot of time there uh, certainly tell the difference. And, and Bob, I know you've lived in China for nine years. In case somebody's watching this and seeing two Caucasian males talk about China, uh, you, you do have a lot of street cred, certainly a lot more than, than I do. So uh, Bob Guterme, COO of SupChina, thank you very much for joining us. And thanks to you for watching at home. Thanks, James. It was a good conversation. I look forward to, to doing it again sometime. Absolutely. Hi there, I'm Brian Christopher. Wish lists are important. When you set a goal, you then strive to achieve it. Similarly, in investing, we often look for a particular setup to buy a stock. When that scenario occurs, when a stock setup meets your goal, you buy. However, you should determine in advance what you want to buy. That's your wish list. And here's the setup for this week's list. Politicians make energy policy. They often do this based on their hopes. But as some of you have heard me say, hope is not an investment strategy. You see, many in the world want green energy to be a larger part of our energy production mix, but we're not there yet. We have to transition to that point. And while we're making progress, we can't switch in an instant. For example, just saying 30% of cars will be EV by 2030 isn't a plan, it's a hope. In some parts of the world, our hopes that energy will become greener has reduced our focus on and our investments in old-school energy production. U.S. President Biden recently visited Saudi Arabia. The first quote you see here was from a Saudi minister. The other is from the CEO of one of the largest energy companies in the world. Both are bullish for a particular type of stock. Many parts of the world have seen gasoline prices spike recently. Refiners make gasoline from crude oil. In addition to gas, crude can be refined into things like propane, jet fuel, diesel fuel, etc. The prices of oil refiners tend to move with the crack spread. This is the difference between the price of crude oil and the products refined from it. To calculate the spread, you subtract the price of oil from the value of the products. The greater it is, the more money refiners make. Here, you can see the price of PBF energy, that's the white line, versus the crack spread. The prices of refiners like PBF are coming back down a bit. The price of PBF is strongly correlated to the crack spread. 
We want to buy when the spread is rising. In this image, you can see the spread bottomed on 6 July. It's back up, but it's too early to tell if this is a confirmed uptrend. Once you confirm the rise in the crack spread, you can buy stocks that benefit from it. So before that happens, we want to generate our wish list. I ran a screen to find U.S. refiners. There aren't too many of them. And I limited the list to those that traded with a price to earnings ratio of less than 20. I was looking for those names that are cheaper than their peers, i.e. those that generate the most earnings relative to their market cap. The initial search returned 11 names. I then removed the names of companies that don't refine oil. The excluded names included companies like gas stations that only market or distribute products. This was the result. This is a great starting point. All four of these names tend to move with the crack spread. You can see the largest three names are big companies. Phillips 66, ticker PSX, Valero Energy, VLO, and Marathon Petroleum, MPC. They all have $40 billion market caps. That puts them in the top half of the S&P 500 index by market cap. These three names pay a dividend, the least of which is 2.7% today. They all tend to increase their dividends as well. PBF Energy is smaller. It also gets the highest percentage of its revenue from refining. So it could pop the most when crack spreads resume their rise. FYI, I generated this list using Bloomberg, but there are other screeners out there as well. For example, Finviz, TradingView, Zacks, Yahoo Finance, among others. Your online broker likely offers one as well. So the U.S. has been slow to build new refineries. This is good for the refineries that exist. They basically have no competition. As always, though, more work is required with these investments. We generated this list to help us know what we may want to buy when the time is right but we can't confirm it's right now. So you'll have to do so in the future. I don't know if any of these ideas will officially become recommendations in my service, which is called Follow the Money, but I wanted to show you how to think about generating a wish list. If you like this video, let us know, and we can create more using different assumptions. Thank you.